This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Did you know that over 85% of cybersecurity breaches happen due to human error? Employees at organizations across the world are too often looked at as the problem instead of the solution. The Living Security Human Risk Management Platform leverages behavioral science, gamification, and a Hollywood-style production to provide training that is 16 times more effective than its competitors. Living Security can help your organization turn your biggest asset, your people, into your best defense against cybersecurity breaches. Check out Living Security by visiting livingsecurity.com to learn more. Thank you, Living Security, for sponsoring this episode. We are glad to have you back here again at the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. And in this episode, Chris and I step out of our comfort zone a bit and speak about nanotechnology to an award-winning scientist and pharmacist. This episode, we speak to Dr. Bahija Raimi Abraham. Dr. Bahija is a pharmacist and lecturer at King's College London, and she shares wisdom and insight on nanotechnology in medicine and how to level up in academia. We're sure you'll enjoy this episode. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. And in our presence today, we have a guest that is doing amazing work in a field that we don't have much insight into. In the studio today, we have Dr. Bahija Raimi Abraham. Dr. Bahija is a pharmacist, lecturer at King's College London, and founder of King's College London Fight the Fakes. We recently met Bahija when I joined you on your podcast, talked all about cybersecurity. It was a blast. And now we have you on our podcast and wanted to say welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. I'm very excited to be on your podcast. <laughs> Bahija, we are beyond excited to have you as well. I told you when we first spoke that if I wasn't in cybersecurity and wasn't doing content, I would be a researcher myself. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Thank you so much. So it's very interesting actually talking about one's career journey because I don't when I think about what I'm doing now, it's not really what I planned to do. <laughs> I actually wanted to be an actress when I was younger. I had dreams of being on stage. That sort of happened, but hasn't really. <laughs> you, haven't seen me in, you haven't seen me in any film, so clearly. Actually, you might have. I was I was an extra in Skyfall, so you may have seen me. But no way. Passed, yeah, I was in the tube scene. I'll explain how that randomly happened. Oh. But um, <laughs> as mentioned, yeah, I started my career as a pharmacist. And so I did my sort of mainly did my practice in community and hospital pharmacy in the UK. Um, and then I went on to do a PhD in an area of pharmacy called pharmaceutics, which is essentially making things. It's called pharmaceutics, which is the science of dosage form design. And um, with that, and again, for me, everything that I've done has been based on what I've been interested in. So I was quite interested in research, but really the fact that you can be 
innovative, you can be creative in science. I feel a lot of us have maybe growing up felt you had to choose between one or the other, you know, science or arts. And I found a way to combine the two by being creative in science by way of research. And so fast forward many years now, as Ron mentioned, I'm a lecturer in pharmaceutics at King's College London, where I lead my research group, the Rimey Abraham Group. The naming isn't really innovative there. (laughs) (laughs) But essentially, in a sort of broad way, we are very focused on solving pharmaceutical challenges in aging and global health with a particular um, focus on infections. And we do that in a variety of ways. So something called pharmaceutical materials and innovative manufacture. So again, generally making stuff, but with a particular interest in nanostructures and nanotechnology. And then on that theme as well, looking at nano-facilitated approaches in infection diagnosis, prevention and treatment. And then another area uh, where there's growing interest is um, looking at what we call substandard and falsified medicines, otherwise known as fake medicines, and trying to implement solution-focused pathways to impact. Um, So that's a very broad overview of what I've been up to. So you said a few things that have triggered me. Nanotechnology, fake medicines, being a lifelong learner through research and creativity. I guess the best place to start is looking at your your past, looking at the fact that you've always been a creative. And even to this day, you're such a creative. You do a lot of writing. You host a podcast called Monday Science Podcast. Definitely check it out for everyone. And you're doing all of these other things that really go beyond just the research. Where do you think that started? And how do you think you got into being a creative? What was the the start there in your life? Well, firstly, thank you for calling me a creative. I... <laughs> You know, it it's 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 very um, it's very strange. I, I would say for me, it started. Let me think about it. It started from young, where I attempted to draw <laughs> a few times, um, and you know, was very into the arts. I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but at eleven is when you start secondary school, and then you have different stages of quote-unquote important exams. So there's GCSEs, which occur around 16. That's your big exams, but you have to make a choice around 13 as to what you want to study. And then there's also A-levels, which occurs after the GCSE, so from 17 to about 18. And those subjects is where you sort of, you refine, you, you focus, because those subjects are going to build a foundation of whatever you want to do at university. And so when I was in that GCSE stage, so that 16-year-old, you know, 13 to 16 years old, um, I was very interested in English, speaking, listening, writing. And when it came to making a decision about what I wanted to do at university, what I wanted to study, I wanted to be an actress, as I mentioned. <laughs> and I remember my having a discussion with my mum. And I'd also, aside from enjoying the arts, I also was quite good and enjoyed sciences as well, particularly chemistry. And, you know, there was that thing of having to make this decision. And I remember my mum said to me, you can maybe study pharmacy first. Pharmacy is a good option because you can be your own boss afterwards. And then you can then have a foundation for if you do decide to be an actress. My mum had seen me act a few times and I worried that she probably felt I wasn't a good actress. That's why she was trying to push me away from that. But um, that's a separate discussion. And so I ended up studying pharmacy, but I had this 
burning desire to still explore my creative side. And I, I, sort of, I say that I studied pharmacy and on my way, I got distracted and did a PhD um, because what <laughs> captured me, <laughs> what captured me was the fact that this was a different outlet for creativity, but in a, in a different way. And because in my career journey, I've picked things, I've made decisions that allowed me to still explore that creative freedom. I feel like that is why I've I've reached where I have today in the various things that I've done. And I feel creativity is in everything, right? You know, personal branding, when you're thinking about, you know, your science and you have, let's say for publishing a paper, you have to put together a graphical abstract. You've got to have that creativity. You've got to visualize how are you presenting your data in a way or your key findings in a way that it's going to capture somebody else. So I do feel that it's always been around and it's always been part of me. But I I have been lucky in my career that because I have a I have this saying that you know we're we're at work more hours of the day than we are at home, you know. And mm-hmm. so it's very important to make sure that the thing that you're doing that is taking up the majority of the t- of your time is something that you care about, is something that you're passionate about, has some form of impact, but also that you enjoy. And I have essentially marched on with that motto and found different ways to have an outlet for my creativity. So more recently, as you mentioned, with starting the podcast, that's been the biggest thing for me in the last year and a bit, because it's really allowed me to bring all aspects of myself together. So, um, you know, getting involved in speaking to different people, but then also being able to talk a lot about science as well. No, that's incredible. And it really resonates with me because I've always felt like a creative trap in the body of a technologist. I learned technology because I was interested in it, but I can remember early on being a creative, telling stories, writing poems. So what you're telling me right now is is almost like me looking into a mirror. You know, one thing that was so interesting about your background and something that I feel like I've been a little disconnected from is nanotechnology. I felt like I was like, oh, yeah, nanotechnology, I'm sure people are doing great research. And whenever they can completely replace my immune system and I can have nanobots throughout my body keep me healthy, then I'll start paying attention again. But where are we at right now when it comes to to nanotechnology? Are we are we getting close to that or are we still quite a ways away? Such an interesting question and such a loaded question as well. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) So it's interesting. So firstly, Let's let's talk about what nanotechnology is, because it's a term that people use to just say anything small, right? <laughs> you know, and right. it's so nanotechnology, understanding and understanding what's going on at the nanoscale, another definition of nanoscale. But essentially, nanoscale is anything between one and 100 nanometers, whereas some people think of nano as anything less than 1000 nanometers, so less than a micron. And the field of nanotechnology, it covers so many different things. So as you mentioned as well, robotics, therapeutics, and so forth. So my interest started in this journey around something called nanofabrication. So that's making small things. (laughs) I'm saying it very bluntly, making small things, (laughs) but making things in the nanoscale. And and, uh, nanoscale and just less than one micron. And I entered that area looking at nanofibers, which is an interesting area. So with nanofibers they can be used in many different ways. So they can be used as drug delivery systems. They can be used in wound wound management. They can be used in textiles. And I think because of the broadness of the general area of nanotechnology, and then 
as I've mentioned, nanofabrication. So making things, whether you're making nanofibers or nanoparticles, there's so much potential. And there are many people working in various different areas. And I feel that because there's more people, you know, maybe about 10 years ago, there were a few people working in this space, but there are more people working in this space now. So we are getting closer. Uh, some of the things that I've been quite interested in when you're talking about nanobots, um, there's a few research groups that I know of in the UK that collaborate with American colleagues that are really trying to expand and combine not the nano and micro robot technology with drug delivery, right? So actually having what we call targeted nanotherapeutics, targeted drug delivery systems in the nanoscale to get to specific sites in the body to treat. So that for me is fascinating. And that highlights the fact that you're getting to the stage where we are at the stage where we're combining robotics, therapeutics to improve health. It just shows you the potential. So I'm quite interested to see where things will go myself. I feel like we're still only at the surface, really. And I'm surprised that people are really, I would say surprised, maybe naively, that there is still a lot of focus on nanotechnology and people aren't trying to go smaller, beyond, below the nanoscale. So I feel the fact that a lot of people are focusing more in the nanoscale, in the you know less than one micron scale, um, and not really going lower means that there's a lot of potential and more work to be done in this space. Sounds really fascinating. And I'm starting to be curious about like what is at the surface level of nanotechnology? Like, do we have little robots that are able to help drugs enter our body, medicine enter our bodies? Or, you know, where are we at today with this scratching of the surface of nanotechnology? Yeah, we're definitely um, at the stage where, I mean, there's, as I said, there's quite a few groups that have been working on these nanorobots. And in fact, I even just reviewed something that was talking about this. Um, <clears throat> and when people are talking about nanorobots, what I've come to understand is that there are two ways of thinking about it. Either literally a mini robot <laughs> that is, you know, something that is so has some either self-battery powered or something, or it has it's something that doesn't have its own battery power. So it doesn't have a mini battery, but it actually moves and operates around the body by various properties of the inherent system itself. So if let's say it's a polymeric system and it can swell in an aqueous environment, then that swelling maybe creates movement and then it moves to a certain area. So there are lots of things. And I feel we're going to see more research in this area. The hurdle is how do these get approved? This is one of the biggest issues I feel in this area, which is there is so much research, emerging research in this area, but how do we then get this into the clinic, into the patient, right? You know, what are the clinical trials that can be conducted there? But also beyond that, how are the regulatory bodies preparing for this wave of new technologies that are coming up? Another area that I work in is 3D printing. And, you know, there's, I believe now, I think there are two regulatory approved products on the market. There was one for many years, 2015, I believe that first one came out um, and that was FDA approved. So far, it's only the new technologies that have been approved have been, have been FDA based. And it's just interesting that we have so much innovative science that's going on, but there is that weird hurdle that we're not seeing it on the market. We're not seeing it for patient benefit. Um, so I would say that's one of the big limitations. There's lots of potential. I mean, imagine being able to 
program and whether that's program digitally or program in the way you're designing this nano robot, this nano system using the inherent properties of the, the system itself to get to the direct center the res- on a receptor level. I'm getting all excited. The receptor <laughs> level. <laughs> it's like getting all excited to think about it. But, you know, getting your drug getting your drug specifically to the receptor that requires that level of specificity and targeting will help the patient by reducing side effects and so forth. However, all of this is very nice and interesting, but we need more products actually on the market. Right. And, you know, speaking of products, there's in our field and even outside of our field, there is this term that always comes up and that's biohacking like someone hacking themselves to maybe perform better to operate differently from your perspective where does biohacking begin and end is it supplements is it something else what is what is your perspective on that Ooh, biohacking. Well, it's not really my area of expertise. However, it sounds very scary. <laughs> That's one thing I would say. <laughs> so do you mean biohacking in terms of these nanosystems, these nanorobots? Yeah, the nanorobots, even like I've seen a lot of people talk about doing more so like the supplements, like taking supplements to perform better, to behave differently and things like that. Oh, I see what you mean. Well, Firstly, when you add the word hacking to everything and anything, uh, to me, in my world, it sounds <laughs> non-ideal and it sounds a bit scary. I would say that the general issue we have with making medicines, regardless of whether they're the bog standard tablets or whether they are um, something you know novel and, and, I guess, new age or emerging technologies such as therapeutic nanobots, you have the issue that there are people unfortunately out there who would want to counter that right who would want to turn that product that item for that's meant to be for good to something bad and I feel like this is part of the challenge with some of these emerging technologies on one hand it can be good because people may not know the the mechanism of action might be quite unique so you're not really going to be able to easily you know look in the literature to figure out how to counter the effects but then on the other hand it can be that you know it becomes a new challenge for people who benefit from you know these sort of things and can result in I don't know more harm for the patients I'm not sure if I've answered that correctly for what you were asking it's just that's the way I interpret that question One thing that I was curious about is nanotechnology, whether it's within the body or even outside of the body, what are the communication mechanisms in which they speak to each other or even like the host machine or or the the HQ, if you want to call it that? How how does that communication take place? Oh, that's so interesting. So in my case, the host HQ, I'm assuming that term is headquarters because <laughs> yes. yes, I was making sure because it's so interesting when you speak to people from different disciplines, not that I know what HQ could mean to me. Actually, it could mean hydroxychloroquine. In my case, the host would be the human, right? The body, the human right. body. And so the way in which, if you think about it, there's so many ways in which different parts of the systems in our body communicate right so they communicate on a receptor to receptor level you they can communicate by way of if it's um like the neuron synapses and things like that so when it comes to nanotechnology and thinking of it from the therapeutic side of things which is where my interests lie and and again it's who's communicating with who this is a very interesting question because are we assuming that the body, well, maybe the, the 
the body in the disease state is sending some level of communication saying this is the area that is the problem, right? Because right. the systems and the processes won't be working in the quote unquote right way, right? And you can have a situation where in the disease state, for example, maybe a certain protein or something is, re- is released or the receptors are in a different shape, let's say, for example. So when you're creating your nanotherapeutics, you could then improve the targeting by adding what we call a ligand that would be able to connect and find its way <laughs> to that specific receptor in the body where it's damaged or is an indicator of the body in a disease state. And so that's how things would generally work because in my sort of interpretation from a therapeutic end, you would see the human, the body is the host. So the messages that's being given out is just going to be, there's something wrong, right? right. And it, it would be our role as pharmaceutical scientists to then design this nanotherapeutic, this nanotechnology to target and to find its way. So really the communication comes from the body saying, ah, I'm in distress, but then the technology, whatever we're developing, this therapeutic needs to have an idea of what what signals are being given out in that distressed state, right? And so this is where things like routes of administration come in. So it could be that, let's say um, it's somebody with cancer. There's a lot of work, nanotechnology and, and nanoparticles and so forth in cancer for two things, something called theranostics. Theranostics is when something can identify, so diagnosed and something. So that's the gnostic part and also provide therapy. So that's the therapart. And theranostics is a very interesting area because if you have a single molecule that a pa- that gets into the patient's body, and it's usually nanoparticle, something called nanobubbles, magnetic particles, if it gets to the tumor, whatever the tumor is, and usually that could be because the nanoparticle has some level, as I mentioned, as, as you know, some targeting, some receptor, it gets to the tumor. And then an imaging technique is used to say, oh, right, that's where that is, or it can be, you know, MRI. And then from that, the the um, nanotherapeutic has found the issue. It's highlighted it. So that can have two benefits. If let's say surgery is required, it's highlighted it to the surgeon or whoever, and then the surgeon or whoever knows where to remove that tumor It's been in cancers. Or it can be, oh, I found the tumor. Now, can you please activate something else for me to now, I'm saying me, like the tumor, the, the nanoparticle, sorry. Um, can you now please create an external excitation of some sort to then help me eradicate that tumor? So for example, um, something called photodynamic therapy, that's also quite commonly used in this area as well. Wow, that's incredible. We're definitely in over our heads a little bit. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very interesting topic. And as you can tell, I'm having a whale of a time, but it's a very interesting topic. And there's, I feel like there's just so much to discuss. And I would say that I wish that there was more interdisciplinary discussion in this area. I think there's more of it. I, I would probably say there's it's m- emerging. But for example, having conversations with people such as yourself where you're not in this area, but actually from this conversation, I'm, you're giving me research ideas. So so Chris, I think you'll be coming a researcher now. There we go. My dream. <laughs> I'm living it out. <laughs> yeah, it's happening. Because when you have conversations with people who are not in your field, that's also where that creativity comes from. It gives you different perspectives. And the fact that if if I'm thinking, I'd never really thought of the human as the host, you know, when it was very interesting, that question. 
Well, now that you mention that, all of these interdisciplinary folks getting together, coming to conclusions, bringing different ways of thinking to these different problem sets. Uh, I mean, that's a perfect segue to talking about academia. Obviously, it wasn't in the cards for me, or at least not at this point in my life, but I feel like research is, so, is one of those things where you can get lost in that world and just discover things and really just be at the forefront of that possible adjacent. How do folks get into academia and what is that decision tree for folks that either want to go to academia or go to some other pathway for their career? Very interesting, amazing question because it's another loaded question. So (laughs) uh, lots to unpack there. So as I've highlighted for me, my journey into academia wasn't necessarily based on I've always wanted to be an academic. There are some people who grow up thinking I, I want to be an academic, not I want to be a scientist, but they're really interested in this academic journey and career. So with academia, generally speaking, you you know you have to study whatever your initial interests are, and then in majority of cases, you do need to do a PhD. And that the PhD, the reason for that is because re- PhDs are research focused, and you develop those research skills. But also, there are people who go into academia and do research, and they don't have PhDs. They um, might might go in, you know, professional. So we have a lot of that with pharmacists, where they're pharmacists who are conducting clinical research based on those clinical expertise, but they haven't necessarily done a PhD. Being in academia and being a scientist, that's one thing I will highlight. It's a very lonely journey because everything does start and end with you. PhD is, 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 you know, you've got your research project. Yes, you have your supervisor who mentors you, but it starts and ends with you. Most cases after the PhD, the person would go on to do um, a postdoc, so a postdoctoral researcher position. And again, that could be in academia, that could be in an industry setting. And on that journey, picking up more research skills and you know other transferable skills. Now, the question about the topic and the choice, the area of interest, yeah, that is very difficult. And some people feel that, oh, if they studied X degree, if they studied whatever subject in their undergrad, then that just determines what they should do for their research if they want to stay in academia. It's not the case at all. I mean, I yes, I studied pharmacy. My PhD was looking at pulmonary drug delivery and trying to encapsulate um, plasmid DNA and with a bit of material science characterization. My postdoc was in nanofabrication. And then I also had a secondment at the European Medicines Agency, which was in a regulatory environment. And now I'm combining all those worlds. So I really feel that the main thing with a career in academia, a career in in the research space is firstly perseverance. You've got to be able to persevere through it all. (laughs) Um, You've got to have a passion. Now, passion, not necessarily for, um, oh, I, I love academia, but there must be something that's driving you right? What is that passion? So for me, my passion is, and my passion and hope is that with the work that I'm doing, I am going to save lives. So when I'm having a bad day, when a paper gets rejected, and I'm adding that in because that happened today, but rejection happens. (laughs) Thank you. Rejection happens all the time. But what keeps me going is that perseverance, that passion. Yeah. And that passion also relates to the topic as well. And the beauty of academia and research, I would say, is there's no limit. It's 
global. You might need to collaborate with somebody on one end of the world with another person on the other end of the world because they're the experts in that area. And that's why I enjoy it because it just, I speak with people in many different time zones. I mean, this is through the podcast today, but <laughs> you know, many different time zones, many different experiences and so forth, but we're all coming together with some level of commonality to save lives. Like ultimately that's what we want to do. So I would say that people who are interested in academia the other thing I would say, actually, specifically to you, Chris, is that there is no set time. You know, you can you can jump in and jump out whenever. That's how I see it. You don't have to. So there's other questions where people say, oh, if I do all my studies first and then go into academia, is that better than having a career and then coming into academia, you know, at a later stage in, in one's life? It doesn't matter at any point. Academia is there. <laughs> it's always there. There is no, in my opinion, there isn't any benefit from doing it straight from university, straight from college, or doing it five, 10 years later. There can be a, an additional benefit, actually, from having your professional career, even if it's, you know, 10 years, 15 years in whatever sector, and then exploring some research ideas then, because that allows for a ma- maturity of ideas and innovation based on your life experience. But I I feel that everybody should or can get involved in some level of research outputs by collaborating. Academics love to hear from people in industry. You know, it's it's even exciting because you're out there in the real world and we are <laughs> we are in our, our own little world. So if anybody has an interest, it doesn't matter, you know, what you're doing, just reach out to somebody at your local university and say, look, I have this idea. What do you think? A lot of the time, I could guarantee you, a lot of the time, the academics would be, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Come on board, let's have a meeting. (laughs) Yeah, honestly. (laughs) So, you know, I I guess I'm putting it this way to say that there is no perfect time, you know, and maybe this is a, a bit of general career advice, but there isn't any perfect time to do anything. But if you have an interest in something, explore if you can explore if you can do it now, you know, um, and explore opportunities and reach out to academics, especially when you bring something different, a different level of experience and exposure, because that helps. And we need more multidisciplinary, these synergistic partnerships to where you're having people from various different parts of the world, various different experiences coming together to solve one problem. That's where we're going to get massive impact and massive movement in a specific area. No, that's incredible advice. Definitely going to take you up on that. There's someone listening to this podcast that's a lot like us. They're multifaceted. They, they're not just in academia. They're not just a creative. They're not just a technician, but they're a, a smattering of the three. What piece of advice would you have for that person that wants to tie these sides of themselves together to be the best version of themselves? Self-evaluation and self-understanding is so important. It starts with you. Everything that you do in your life starts with you. I'm a big uh, fan of doing personality test questionnaires because it's just very good to be grounded and know yourself. And one of the things that I've even mentioned in, in today's conversation is the importance of understanding all facets of yourself and being unapologetically yourself, right? If you know you have all these combined interests, you can achieve that and have that in your day-to-day life. However, you do also have to be smart about it. You have to identify what is the need and how are you going to fill that gap with you being all of who you are and all those expertise that you have. I definitely think that 
uh, the starting point is really understanding what skills you bring. So we have this a lot with academics where people who have an academic background feel that, oh, all they can do is research. What about this, you know, your transferable skills? And that applies to anybody in any job, right? What are your transferable skills and how can you use that? And those transferable skills could be from your professional work, you know, whatever you're doing in your nine to five, they can be from your creative side, you know, and what is that? And if you have an understanding of the skills that you have, you can use that as a way to sell yourself and sell those expertise to wherever. The other thing as well is to, it's important to know that not everybody will understand you. (laughs) Mm. That actually, for me, has been the biggest battle, I would say, in my career, where I'm like, I know what I want to do. And I have a vision of what I want, my my ideal working day. But how do I get there? And why am I not fitting in with what people are expecting of me? You know, when I first became a a lecturer, I really had massive imposter syndrome because I just was like, why am I here? (laughs) I mean, I went through the job interview and all that, but (laughs) why am I actually here? Initially, I tried to conform. I tried to be the usual academic let's put it that way but it affected me it affected my own mental health I was not happy and I was just like I can't deny myself anymore I will be me right whatever that is however I will be me in the polished version where it's clear what my skill sets are and how that brings benefit not just for me but to the people around me so to just uh, sum up on that is firstly really be clear on your skill set, not the skill set for your job, but your skills in all areas of your life. Write it down, have an understanding, write it down, share it with a friend who knows you and and say, what do you think? Get a mentor, right? I have mentors in that support me in all the different areas of my interests. And then from that, really just build your confidence to say, this is who I am. This is who I'm going to be. This is how I'm going to present myself. And then you work towards defining and creating your own space don't wait for people to give you the go-ahead to say yeah you can do this create your own space that's what I think wow much like nanotechnology I feel like we're only scratching the surface in this conversation but it was truly an honor Behija to bring you on to the mics and have this great conversation for the folks that want to stay up to date with you all your research and everything that you're doing with your podcast what are the best ways that people can stay up to date Thank you for that. Um, it's just easier to find me on, on my website. So www.bahijaraimiabraham.com. And that, that has links to everything there. Great. We will be sure to drop that in the show notes and have everyone check out your podcast and also stay up to date with all of your work. Dr. Bahija, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see everyone next time. Found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.